Good morning. Welcome to our services here at Ivy Creek on, as I mentioned to the first service, on this balmy Sunday morning here in Beaufort, Georgia. We are glad that you're here. We're glad that we've got a warm place to be able to come and to worship the Lord together. If you brought your Bibles with you, and I hope that you have, would you please take them and turn with me to the Gospel of Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. And if you are new to Ivy Creek, perhaps today is your first time or you're still trying to get to know a little bit about who we are here, I want you to know that as we turn to the Gospel of Mark, this is something that we as a church family have been doing now for a year. We have been studying through Mark's Gospel since January of last year. And we have worked our way through chapter 9 and we're systematically going to work our way through the end of this book. And this morning we find ourselves by God's providence here at the beginning of chapter 10. Let me also say to you, if you're new and you maybe are trying to learn a little bit about us, we hold the scriptures to be in very high regard here. We believe that, that they are the very word of God given to the people of God. And because the scriptures are God's word, we believe that they are inerrant that they are infallible, and that they are completely authoritative with regards to matters of everything that deals with us in our lives. In other words, what the Word of God reveals to us about God, what it reveals to us about His holy and righteous nature, and also what it reveals to us about our fallen and our sinful nature, all of that is completely true. We believe that because the Scriptures have told us so. What the Word of God tells us is that each of us and our consciences will also testify that all of us in this room are sinners. The Bible states that each and every one of us have fallen short of the glory of God. Not a one of us in this room today can say that we are totally innocent or that we are sinless. And therefore, what the Bible tells us about what He has done to rectify that is that he has sent, God has sent His one and only Son, Jesus Christ. And that Jesus Christ has come to live a pure, perfect, sinless, and holy life. And that he's gave, given that life in exchange for ours on the cross of Calvary. He took my sin and your sin upon himself. He took our punishment upon himself so that we might be set free from the penalty of our sin. And the Bible clearly tells us that the penalty of our sin is death and eternal punishment and hell. Jesus is our only remedy. The Bible presents him that way. He is our only hope to be saved from our sins. He is the one who offers us salvation. He offers it to every man, woman, boy, and girl who will repent of their sins, who will turn from their sins, acknowledge it, turn from it, and trust in him and in him alone. Jesus said in John chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. The Bible also tells us in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised you from the dead, you will be saved. We believe that here. God's word to us is true. It is completely authoritative with regard to our salvation, a salvation that is offered only to us through Jesus Christ. But I also want you to know that the Bible is completely true and authoritative with regard to how we are to live our lives and to the decisions that we make. In fact, there are many things that are related to our everyday lives that the Scriptures give clarity and direction to. And as we turn to Mark chapter 10 this morning, we find that Jesus Himself speaks with great clarity with regard to an issue that has affected many, if not all of us in this room, either directly or indirectly. 
This morning, in the course of our study of Mark's gospel, we come to the subject of marriage and divorce. And because we affirm that God's word is inerrant and that it is infallible and that is authoritative with regard to everything that pertains to life and to spiritual issues, what we come to this morning is to recognize is that what the scriptures reveal to us about marriage and divorce is completely true. And it serves as the standard by which we are to live. So with that as an introduction and sort of to set the stage for what we are going to look at this morning, let's open our Bibles. Let's hear God's word as he has given it to us, beginning in Mark's gospel, chapter 10, verse 1, where we read that the Bible says this. Then he, that is Jesus, arose from there and came to the region of Judea by the other side of the Jordan, and multitudes gathered to him again. And as he was accustomed, he taught them again. The Pharisees came and asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Testing him. And he answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her. And Jesus answered and said to them, Because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. In the house, his disciples also asked him again about the same matter. So he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. It's for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you know exactly how to use your word to accomplish your desires in our lives. We thank you that you have given us instruction, definition. And Father, through that, your Holy Spirit is able to bring conviction into our lives and help us to see things from the perspective that we should see things from. So Father, I pray that your Spirit will be given that freedom to work in our hearts. Give us ears to hear and hearts to be able to understand the word that you have for us this morning. We pray for your glory and for our good, in Christ's name. Amen. I want to point out to you the question that kind of dominates this entire section and actually sets this entire section into motion. We see it there in verse 2. I've actually given it to you for your outline this morning in your bulletin. The question is, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? But I want to go back and read the entire verse to set it in its context. The Pharisees came. And asked Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And then Mark makes sure we understand that they were testing him. Now, rarely is a question ever asked that does not have something behind it. In other words, when a question is asked, a lot of times there, most of the time, there is a, a motivation behind that question. And that is certainly the case here. Notice that Mark tells us that the Pharisees were testing Jesus. 
In other words, the Pharisees didn't come to Jesus with a genuine desire to understand the purpose of marriage. The Pharisees didn't come to say, hey, we want to learn how to be better husbands to our wives. What can you give us instructions on how we can improve our marriages? That's not why they came. They weren't looking to how to strengthen that which was already in existence. Rather, they don't even mention marriage at all, if you'll notice, in their question. In fact, the Pharisees were really only focused on divorce and specifically... They were focused on the circumstances under which divorce was permitted. In the parallel passage to this one in Mark 10, you'll find it in Matthew chapter 19. We read in chapter 19, verse 3 of that chapter, that the Pharisees posed the question this way. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And it's here that we are alerted to the fact that this question regarding divorce was posed by the Pharisees as a way to trap Jesus. In fact, that's the first point that I want you to notice on your outline this morning that I've given you in your bulletin. The question about divorce was designed to trap Jesus. I want to point out a few indicators to you that will show you that the Pharisees weren't up to any good whatsoever when they asked Jesus this question. The first one we notice, if you've been with us in our study of Mark's gospel, you'll know that this is a, a common occurrence for them. They, along with the scribes, the scribes and the Pharisees would go and they would attempt to try to, 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 to question Jesus, to needle him, to try to entrap him in some kind of way so that they could discredit him to the eyes of the people. And you might know that they had already set their sights against Jesus in an attempt to try to destroy him. In fact, back in Mark's Gospel, chapter 3, we read there that Jesus healed a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath day. And because of that, the Pharisees became so incensed that they left that, that encounter with Jesus and went out and sided with the Herodians, who were the political leaders of the day, who were their avowed enemies. And yet the Pharisees sided with the Herodians so that they might destroy Jesus. What that tells us is, is that when the Pharisees come to Jesus here in chapter 10 to ask him this question, we might, we might think that maybe they had the best reasons in the world, but their actions have shown that they're only trying to test him, to trap him. Another indicator is, is, that tells us that this is happening is where Jesus is when this question is asked of him. Mark tells us back in verse 1 that Jesus had arrived in the region of Judea by the other side of the Jordan. In other words, Jesus has left Galilee. That's been the area where the majority of Mark has, has, has been centered thus far. Jesus has left Galilee and he's making his way steadfastly toward Jerusalem. And his progress has led him to this region of Judea, which is east of the Jordan River, which is, in a known, which is known to be a territory named Perea. Now, what's interesting about the territory of Perea is that it is governed by a man named Herod Antipas. Now, some of you will remember Herod Antipas's name. We read about him and his sordid family affair back in Mark chapter 6. And if you will remember, Herod Antipas was a wicked man. He had married the daughter of King Aretas IV, but he had found favor with a woman named Herodias, who was his brother's wife. And so Herod divorced his wife, the wife that he had from King Aretas IV, and he took his sister-in-law from Herod Philip and made her his wife. And if you'll remember from Mark chapter 6, John the Baptist came on the scene and he wasn't having any of it. 
In fact, he called Herod out. And explicitly what we learn in Mark chapter 6, verse 18 was that John the Baptist confronted Herod by telling him, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Now that offended Herod Antipas, but it really made Herodias mad. She really took offense to it. And as a matter of fact, what we read there was is that she used her influence and she manipulated both her daughter and her husband to have John the Baptist beheaded. Well, now we're back in that same region here in Mark chapter 10. Jesus has come to the very place. In fact, some, some believe that he stood when, when he was here and he was teaching the crowds that he was in the shadow of the very jail where it was that John the Baptist had been beheaded. And it is here that he's surrounded by multitudes so that nothing that he says and nothing that he does can be kept quiet. And it's at this time here that the Pharisees come and ask him this question. Now, let me ask you, do you think that's a coincidence? Do you think the Pharisees just happen to want to know about divorce when they're in this region of Perea? I think not. I believe it was calculated. I believe it was planned. They knew what Jesus had previously taught concerning a divorce. He had already taught with regard to his, his, his uh, opinion with regard to it in the Sermon on the Mount back in Matthew chapter 5. These Pharisees simply wanted to get Jesus to repeat some of those things and maybe, just maybe they thought... Well, they could, they could end up getting his head cut off by Herod just as John the Baptist's had been. So Mark tells us they were testing Jesus, and that really sets up the context for us. It tells us the, the purpose. It tells us the underlying meaning behind why the Pharisees asked the question. But let's get to the question itself. Notice how Jesus responds to their question. Jesus responds often this way. When he's asked a question, he typically responds with a question of his own. He does that here. He asks him, he says, what did Moses command you? And the Pharisees respond to Jesus. They respond this way. Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss his wife. Now, technically, the Pharisees are right because they are basing their answer on a passage of Scripture in Deuteronomy chapter 24. And in Deuteronomy 24... We hear Moses say these words. He says, when a man takes a wife and marries her and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce. Now, while the Pharisees were technically right in saying that Moses permitted the writing of a certificate of divorce, I want you to notice that nowhere in that passage that I read for you did Moses command that a certificate of divorce be written. He did not make that a thing that had to occur. Rather, Moses is simply addressing the fact that by the time of the writing of the law, divorce had become a common practice. And that common practice affected people's lives in a negative way. And the, the rest of Deuteronomy 24 goes on to bring provisions in place that would protect both the, the, the spouse, both spouses in that marriage that was being dissolved. Now, what was always debated about Deuteronomy 24, though, was, and what was still being debated in the time of Christ was not whether a divorce certificate could be issued, but rather upon what basis could a divorce certificate be issued. Specifically, the question sought to clarify what Moses meant when he wrote, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her. What did Moses mean by that? What was the uncleanness that 
that a man could find that legitimately allowed him to divorce his wife. Well, there were two schools of thought in Jesus' day that were prevalent with regard to how they interpreted that passage. One was headed up by a rabbi who was Rabbi Hillel. Rabbi Hillel interpreted Moses' words to be pretty much anything that a husband found that would displease him. If she didn't comb her hair right that morning, if, if she burned the biscuits at breakfast, if he found someone else that he thought was more attractive than her. Rabbi Hillel interpreted Moses' words in a very broad way and in a very liberal approach said, a man can pretty much divorce his wife for any reason whatsoever. Now, his view was contrasted by a more conservative approach from another school of thought headed up by Rabbi Shammai. Rabbi Shammai believed that divorce was only, was only a, an option based upon the grounds of some grave matrimonial offense that involves sexual misconduct on behalf of the wife. Now understand, in Moses' time, he wasn't referring to adultery per se because adultery during the time of Moses in the time of the law was punished by death. And so adultery didn't result in, in divorce first. It resulted in death first. But nevertheless, Rabbi Shammai interpreted what Moses said there in, in Deuteronomy 24 to, to estimate that, that a woman could do something objectionable. She could do something lewd, something that was short of adultery that was allowable then for the husband to divorce her. Some often even came alongside and said it could be that she was barren and could have no children or it could be that she had some other kind of birth defect. The truth is, is that Rabbi Shammai, though, held to a much stricter view of what Moses wrote. Rabbi Hillel held to a much more liberal view. Those were the two ways that divorce were used in Jesus' day. And remember the Pharisees are coming to ask Jesus this question. They're trying to trap him. They're not only trying to get word back to Herod, I believe, but they're also trying to set up a group against one another. And it really didn't matter to them which way Jesus answered the question. They were just going to use his answer in a way to discredit him with the other group. But I want you to know Jesus doesn't take their bait. The Pharisees want to trap him, embroil him, get him into some kind of argument. But Jesus doesn't answer their question. Instead, he identifies the issue that underlies every single divorce. And that is sin. In fact, notice the second point on your outline this morning. The question with regard to divorce actually demonstrated the hardness of the people's heart. The question of divorce demonstrated the hardness of the people's heart. In verse 5, Jesus tells the Pharisees unequivocally that the prospect of divorce only emerged as the result of hard-heartedness. Do you remember back in my introduction when I began to talk about the fact that every single one of us in this room are sinners? The Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and that includes every single one of us in this room. Well, do you know another way that we can define what sin is? Sin is, is the hardening of one's heart against the clear commands that God has given to us in His Scripture and against the clear conviction and the leading of the Holy Spirit. That's what sin is. That's how it, that's how it begins to function in our lives. And what Jesus clearly states here is that divorce, no matter the reason and no matter the circumstance, ultimately will find its root in hard-heartedness. And that's what it means when we say that, that divorce was never something that was intended to occur. It was never God's design that a man and a woman 
after they had entered into the covenant of marriage, would see that marriage dissolved by anything other than death. And to his point, Jesus takes the Pharisees back. He takes them back past the law, past the writing of Moses. He takes them all the way back to the Garden of Eden. He takes them back to Genesis 1 and 2 and to our first parents, Adam and Eve. In fact, let me just read for you once again what Jesus says there in verses 6 through 9. He says, But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Now I want you to notice what Jesus has done. He's taken a question that was designed to trap him, a question whose subject only stems from a hard-hearted sin, and he takes that question and he turns it so that he can talk positively about marriage. In fact, that's the third point on your outline this morning. See, the question about divorce actually allowed Jesus to explain God's definition of marriage. And from our Lord's words, what we can identify are at least three crucial parts to what we learn about marriage in this passage. Actually, there's four. One I left assumed by the way I structured your outline, but let me state it clearly for you. You may even want to write it down as a separate subpoint from the three that I've given you. But what I want you to know is that marriage is a union. Marriage is a union. Notice that in verse 9, God joins two people together into one flesh. They are not... No, no longer two individuals living individual lives who occasionally sort of interact and intersect with one another. No, they are joined together. Marriage is a union. It is the joining together of two individuals. So that's where we begin. But what I want you to notice is that union can be defined by three adjectives. It can be further given definition by three adjectives. And the first one is subpoint A, and that is that marriage is a heterosexual union. Marriage is a heterosexual union. Notice that Jesus reminds the Pharisees of what we read in Genesis 1:27, which tells us that when God made mankind, he made them male and female. He goes on to say from what we read in Genesis 2:24 that a, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. What that tells us is that, did you notice that Jesus talked about two separate sets of relationships there? That a man would leave his father and mother, and be joined to his wife. Two sets of relationships. One would be created, one was already in existence. Both of them to speak of a male and a female, a man and a wife, a husband and his bride. What that tells us quite clearly is that God created marriage. It was his idea, and therefore it is a divinely created institution. And it is an institution that occurs between a male and a female, a man and a woman. And so regardless of, of how our culture further defines marriage, regardless of how our legal system further defines marriage, according to the inerrant, infallible, authoritative Word of God, marriage is a heterosexual union that is created by God to exist between a man and a woman. But there's, there's more 
to this definition that we need to look at. Another adjective comes up there in the second point. Point B, marriage is a monogamous union. It's a monogamous union. Marriage is designed to be between one woman and one man. When God created Adam and Eve and he married them together, they didn't have multiple partners from whom they could choose. When that ceremony took place, regardless of how it looked, Adam wasn't looking over Eve's shoulder and wanting to see what Sally and, and Mary were thinking about over there. And, and, and likewise, Eve, when, when she was married to Adam, wasn't worried about what Joe and Johnny and Jim Bob was, was going to think and if they would be better partners. None of that was taking place. Why? Because they were the only two. And so sometimes people will say, well, well if God had instituted marriage later, Maybe a few centuries later, a few generations later, when there would have been more potential partners to choose from, then things would have been different. But listen, friends, God didn't institute it later. He did it right there at the very beginning. And he did it there for a reason. He did it to set, in fact, the design that it was, marriage was supposed to be a monogamous union where the husband's eyes are only for his wife and the wife's eyes are only for her husband. So marriage is a heterosexual union between a man and a woman. It is a monogamous union to be between one woman and one man. And the third that we see here is that marriage is to be a lifelong union. That's subpoint C on your outline. Lifelong union. Jesus declares in verse 9 that since marriage is a union that God designed, characterized by joining together, then he says, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Oftentimes in wedding ceremonies, maybe in some of your ceremonies, you'll see the, uh, the unity candle ceremony inside the, the whole wedding. And, 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 and when that happens, the, the groom will, will, will take one of the candles and the, the bride will take a candle. And those candles represent their individual lives that they have lived up to this point. And then they will take those two candles with those flames lit and they will, they will lean them together to a center candle that has remained unlit up to that point. And those two flames will come together to light the, the center candle. And, and the reason that that happens, and then when they take those two candles away, they'll blow them out. And what that unity candle is designed to, to tell everybody there, not just the, the people out there, but the, the bride and the groom, is that we, we did have our own individual lives, but we no longer have our own individual life. Now the flame of my life and the flame of your life are being joined together, and there is no way to divide that new flame that's been created back into its old flames. And, and, and in that ceremony, it is there to describe the indissoluble nature of what is created when a man and a woman are married together. It is a permanent union, a union that is intended to be lifelong. Now, in light of all of that, I like how Derek Thomas has put things. He says that God's definition of marriage is very different from what people often view as marriage these days. Marriage is a bond between two people so deep, he says, and so profound that both of them are inescapably affected by it. It is so profound that once a person is married, everything he thinks about involves the person to whom he is married. A husband and a wife have become one flesh. And then he, he puts the exclamation point on it this way. He says, they are no longer two, but they are one, one, one. One, he says, and this word must be stressed over and over and over again. 
So in light of all of that, do you see what Jesus has done? How masterful he is? These Pharisees have tried to trap him. He has masterfully turned their trapping question back around. He's failed to get enmeshed in any kind of controversy. He's failed to have Herod come and get him just yet. Maybe that might happen. He's, he didn't, who knows at this point? But to be honest, I really doubt if these Pharisees cared what he did. They just wanted to cause trouble. But Jesus has taken this trap, and he's pushed all of us back to Genesis 1 and 2. Back to the, he's highlighted exactly what God intended for marriage to be that it would be a union between one man and one woman for life. And what he has revealed to us is that any departure from that reflects the hard-hearted consequences that we read about in Genesis 3. You see, in Genesis 3 is where we read that Adam and Eve disobediently sinned against God and his commands. And as Jesus has said, it is only the result of such hard-hearted sinfulness that divorce ever entered the picture. So the question is raised in verse 2. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What's the answer? Well, I've given it to you. I've put it there in your, answer, in your outline. I've written it down there. It's two words. The answer. You've got it right there. I do want to point you to what Jesus said. You remember, the disciples wanted to know the answer. The disciples, when they get back with Jesus in their smaller group, they want to know, tell us the answer to these things. And so Jesus, Jesus says these words in verse 11 and 12. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another, commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now you'll notice that in Mark's account of Jesus' words, he does not include an exception clause for divorce. And if this were the only passage in the Bible that spoke to this issue then the answer would be an unequivocal no. Divorce is not permissible under any circumstances because Jesus didn't give any. However, in the parallel passage of this one that I referred to earlier from Matthew chapter 19, verse 9, Jesus says this, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery and whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. I also referenced earlier that Jesus had taught on this specific subject in the Sermon on the Mount, particularly in Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. Those two verses, by the way, are a good summary of everything that we've looked at in Mark 10 thus far. In Matthew 5, verse 31 and 32, Jesus says, It has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. So though we do not find the exception clause concerning sexual immorality included in Mark's account, we do find it from the lips of Jesus on two separate occasions in Matthew's gospel. Furthermore, we find another exception that is allowed for divorce from the lips of the apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15. Paul says there that if a believing spouse or excuse me, if an unbelieving spouse, one who is not a believer in Christ, decides that he, and he is married to a believing spouse, but that person decides they can no longer stay in that marriage. In other words, if they say, I've had enough, I don't believe in Jesus, and I don't like the faith that you have, and I'm not going to stick with it anymore, I'm leaving, I can't take it, then Paul says that under such circumstances, the believing spouse is no longer bound to that marriage. 
Now, understand, brothers and sisters, there is much more that could be said and discussed from those passages. And time does not permit us to delve into each one of those this morning in these circumstances. Nevertheless, what they do tell us is that Scripture is very narrow with regard to the reasons that a marriage can be dissolved. Consequently, what we can conclude is that there is no room for the irreconcilable differences or other popular reasons for divorce that we see in our day. In fact, Jesus makes it clear that such a liberal view with regard to divorce and remarriage actually causes a person to break the seventh commandment, which is the commandment not to become an adulterer. So in light of all of that this morning from Mark 10 and from our further study, I offer you my sermon in a sentence, which I hope will be by way of a summary, but also to give us a, a, a view toward how this applies. My sermon in a sentence this morning is this. Since God designed marriage as a union between one man and one woman, singularly devoted to each other for life, we must not let our hearts that are hardened by sin and selfishness complicate and seek to undo his plan. I found James Edwards' comments on this passage to be helpful. I'll read them for you. He says, Jesus does not conceive of marriage on the grounds of its dissolution, but on the grounds of its architectural design and purpose by God. He goes on to say this. He says, though, the intent of Jesus' teaching is not to shackle those who fail in marriage with debilitating guilt. Furthermore, he says, the question is not whether God forgives those who fail in marriage. The question in our day of impermanent commitments and casual divorce is whether we as Christians will hear the unique call of God to discipleship in marriage. So with that in mind, what, what does a call to such a discipleship entail? What does it necessitate? Well, based upon Jesus' teaching regarding divorce, you cannot be, can be assured that God's will for husbands and wives is to work through every conceivable level of trouble that they may face. When trouble comes, and it will, marital reconciliation and the restoration and the preservation of that marriage ought always to be the goal of the individuals involved. That doesn't mean that such work is going to be easy and that it's not going to come without sacrifice and that it's not going to come without difficulty. But understand, brothers and sisters, we only need look to what forgiveness and grace and mercy cost our Savior on the cross to recognize that that's what he demands from us as well. As husbands and wives, we must be willing to go to great lengths to extend forgiveness and grace and mercy to our spouses when we have been wronged. Furthermore, based on what Jesus has taught us, you and I can be assured that it is never God's will for you or for me to pursue an intimate relationship with someone other than our spouse. Those kind of relationships must be reserved for our spouses and for them alone. Anything else is sinful. And for those of us in this room that are not married but hope to one day be married, let me say this, you can be assured that it is God's will for you to remain sexually pure cherishing your virtue 
until the day when in the bonds of marriage you can express the depth of marital love and affection through that gift of God. But our Lord's teaching also necessitates introspection. What about those who have been divorced? Particularly those who have been divorced for reasons other than the exceptions that are, we find in the scriptures that we've looked at briefly this morning. How do we evaluate those current marriages? What does that evaluation reveal to us? Well, I'm reminded of what another passage in John chapter 8 where we see that Jesus encounters a woman who has been caught in adultery and I'm reminded of the last words that he says to her. He looks at her and he says, Go and sin no more. Brothers and sisters, if you find yourself in that situation this morning, understand that what has happened has happened. It cannot be changed now. And as one wise person told me years ago, he said, when an egg is scrambled, you can't go back and pull the yolk from the white. If you find yourself in that scenario this morning and you're wondering what all this means with regard to you and even to your current marriage, may I say this to you with all the compassion and all the kindness that I can muster? You are a sinner. That is a fact of the matter. But may I also say to you that you are in a room that is surrounded by, but you are surrounded by sinners. There's not a one of us in this room that can claim that we've never sinned. In fact, if you go back to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says it only takes a look at a woman to be guilty of adultery. We are all sinners. And that should bring some comfort to you, not because misery loves company, but rather because it is only here at the foot of the cross under the direction of God through his word that we can find forgiveness, true forgiveness that will forgive us of our sins and give us eternal life. You see, here's the good news. The Bible not only expresses our sin, but it reveals to us that Jesus came and died on the cross in order to take away our sin to remove it from our account so that we no longer stand before him condemned, but rather that we can stand before him forgiven. And here's the promise that our Lord Jesus has given us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And friends, what that means is that you may receive comfort today. It is because Jesus Christ came to pay the debt that sinners like you and I have incurred that we can have hope. I love what R.C. Sproul has written with specific regard to what we've discussed this morning. He says, we must not forget the vital role of the gospel in these matters. Anyone who has been through an illegitimate divorce or sinned sexually against his or her spouse needs to know that these are not unforgivable sins. These are what sent Christ to the cross and all who put their trust in him are forgiven. The kingdom of God is not closed to those who are divorced and all in the church should be quick to share this good news with those whose marriages have failed or are hurting. Brothers and sisters, I simply leave you this morning with this. Our kind and loving and forgiving Savior has clearly laid out for us the indissoluble nature of marriage. May we then as husbands and wives and as future Husbands and wives make it our highest priority to live according to his righteous standards. Because brothers and sisters, 
This is the inerrant, the infallible, the authoritative word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together.